1: Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Today is Friday, January 21st, 2011. Episode 193 comes to you today from Studio C in snow-covered McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Cliff Slotnick, or the Z-Man. Radio Joe is participating remotely from Indian Lake in lovely Somerset, Pennsylvania, and I'm sure they got more snow than we did. At the Controls is our our engineer, Austin Stone Cold Novak. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question, an interview with Mark J. Mendel, Ph.D., Commentary by Dr. Dietrich Weil and The Roundup. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website every week after the show. Check it out at www.iaqradio.com. Now we'd like to thank our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com.
2: John Don Products,
1: Indoor restoration Indoor.
2: And a restoration and abatement contractor shop at JohnDon.com.
1: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news, visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. To contact the show by phone, simply call 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. You can also listen live or download the show. It's easy. Just go to our website, www.iqradio.com and follow the link that says go to the show. The show is also available through iTunes. Don't forget, you can get your ABIH Certification Maintenance Points, IICRC Continuing Education Credits, or ACAC Renewal Credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting a quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Our email addresses are also on the homepage of the iaqradio.com website. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. A cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, just text in your answer. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, January 21, 2011, has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the Indoor Air Quality Industries dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for this week's trivia question: In a March 2003 survey taken by Hospital Doctor magazine, name the physician voted the greatest doctor of all time. Over to you, Joe.
2: Okay, thank you, Cliff. Today's guest, Dr. Mark Mandel, is with the Indoor Environment Department of Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and the Indoor Air Quality Section of the California Department of Public Health. He's a staff scientist with the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and air pollution research specialist at the Indoor Air Quality Section of the Cal Department of Public Health. He was formerly at CDC's National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health where he was for six years the head of the National Occupational Research Agenda Team for Indoor Environments. Dr. Mendel is on the editorial board of the journal Indoor Air and a member of the International Academy of Indoor Sciences. He holds a Bachelor of Arts from Cornell, a Bachelor of Landscape Architecture from the University of Oregon, Master of Public Health and Ph.D. in Epidemiology from the U.S. California Public Health. Dr. Mandel has worked for over 20 years in the field of environmental epidemiology, focusing on health effects related to indoor environments in buildings. He's done work over a wide range of issues, and we're thrilled to have him here with us on the show today. I believe we have some introductory music for him as well.
0: There's a leak in soul building, and my soul
2: oh, to... one that worked for both the laboratory and the California Department of Health. How did that come about, and um, how do you juggle your, your time between those two jobs?
0: Uh, well, it works very well. I've never known anyone to do both either because they do, do very different kinds of work. At OBL, they're trying to do rigorous research for the Office of Science for the uh, U.S. Department of Energy, and they don't do anything that's so applied in, in my area. But at the health department, they try to take the science and apply it to the public health in a, in a, a very practical way. And so what I do with both places is uh, health effects of indoor air. It, it works really well to spend some of the time trying to develop really good science related to indoor air and health, and then part of the time trying to apply it directly to the public health once it's developed. What got you interested in this type of um, work, the indoor environment? And how long have you been doing this? Uh, well, I have a, a, an unusual transition. I used to be a landscape architect, and then I got interested in the effect of low-level environmental exposures on large groups of people that were difficult to study and interested in why people got sick in buildings, but... Uh, the health science couldn't seem to figure out what they were being exposed to or how actually they were sick. So all the usual measurements didn't seem to work. And that seemed very interesting to me. And so the first thing I did in, in my doctoral work in, in uh, epidemiology was to look at this question of whether certain kinds of ventilation systems in buildings have any kind of systematic relationship with symptoms in the people in the buildings when they're not already worried that they're sick, These are not sick buildings. And it turned out that air-conditioned buildings all over the world were associated with more symptoms in the people in the buildings than naturally-violated buildings. And that was the first indication that I had that there might actually be something real and environmental that you could study related to these very nonspecific symptoms that people complained about in office buildings. And from there, I just moved into other aspects of indoor air and health. Yeah. I've got a copy of your CV
2: here, and, and you're prolific. I mean, I, I just reading all the titles of the papers and the publications and the presentations you've done, it took me a good, you know, 45 minutes have, uh, the other night to go down through this. How long have you been uh, with uh, Lawrence Berkeley Labs now and the California Department of Public Health?
0: Well, when I did my dissertation, I was working with LBL. Uh, that was a study of California office buildings. Uh, and that was that was uh say nineteen eighty five to nineteen ninety and then I went off for ten years to NIOSH, which uh, is in Ohio, and then I came back to California and I was at lBL full time and then just a couple years ago, I went half time at uh, LBL and the Department of Public Health.
2: okay, so this has been over. We're looking at what uh twenty five years now, yeah. I
0: guess twenty five years
2: yeah. <laughs> And when you said you went to NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, we we have the acronym police that come in from time to time, um, and they will fire a siren at us if we use too many acronyms. But um, I, you mentioned Ohio. Is there, I'm thinking West Virginia,
0: is that the same location? Or are yeah. you in a different, okay. So the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health is the center of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that focuses on worker health, and so NIOSH has a number of locations, and so the two largest ones are in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I was, and in Morgantown, West Virginia, and Morgantown, West Virginia is the group that focuses on respiratory health, uh, and the Cincinnati location focuses on everything else, so when I, I, was, I was the main researcher at NIOSH on indoor environment which are non-agricultural and non-industrial, so it's like offices, health care. And so that's the research I was doing at Cincinnati. And since I left NIOSH in 2000, the work that's uh, still going on at NIOSH in Indoor Air is focused on asthma and respiratory health, and that's going on with a group in Workington, West Virginia now. Ah,
2: okay. Now I understand, but thanks for the clarification. Now, when you were there,
0: what was the emphasis at that time? When I was there, what NIOSH was trying to do was respond to the enormous number of requests for help that they got from people who worked in uh, non-industrial, non-agricultural, indoor work environments, black offices, who said their work environment was making them sick. And that soon was the majority of the requests that NIOSH got, even though traditionally that was never even a question. And so they were trying to figure out how to deal with that, and so when they hired me on they, they were trying to do some actual epidemiology, some actual health studies to figure out why do people get sick in office buildings when nothing we measure is above levels that we, we know of as harmful, and no explicit recognized illnesses show up in the people either. And so they were trying to figure out that mystery. Um, so I was there for 10 years, and it is still not much clearer what is going on, uh, although what, what is clear, I think, now is that a lot of it has to do with uh, dampness and moisture. Uh, Some of it may have to do with the ventilation systems themselves producing some contaminants, and there may be something going on with chemicals as well, but it's still very unclear. And I'm I'm glad we delved into this a little bit because I've
2: reviewed a few of those earlier responses, I guess, from NIOSH, and I believe one was Right outside of where I live here, in a place called Somerset, Pennsylvania. Does that ring a bell by any chance?
0: No, sir. there's a different group at NIH that does the responses. I was not in that group. I see. Okay. Okay.
2: Well, let's let's move on and um, talk a little bit about your research. It's focused primarily on on health effects related to indoor environments, and um, you kind of you did a nice job of just now categorizing. I guess there would be three major categories, at least that's what I pulled from your papers. One is ventilation problems, uh, moisture and dampness issues would be the second, and then chemical emissions. And I think you sort of answered this, but I just want to make sure I heard you right. Which of those do you feel is probably causing the most health issues within the
0: United States today? Um, Well, first of all, we don't really know enough to say. Uh, Second of all, there are different kinds of things you can't really separate because um, moisture and dampness would cause exposures, chemicals would cause exposures. Ventilation is not an exposure, it's just something that modifies any exposure you happen to have in a building. So they all they interact. Uh, and so if you have a problem of something producing contaminants in the building, inadequate ventilation would make it worse. Uh, uh, and on the other hand, if you assume that every building has some kind of contaminants inside, even if you don't know what they are, poor ventilation would cause a problem in any building if there's always some contaminants that are, that are being produced indoors. And so I don't think I could easily say which are the which is the worst, although I think the one we know the most about now is moisture and dampness. That's kind that's of better studied and better documented than the others. Okay,
2: and I, you know, I... I can really appreciate that answer because we try and always emphasize the fact that these issues are interrelated and um, it is difficult sometimes to differentiate what's actually the cause, which is a lot of times the problem with uh, solving some of these issues and, and then also the problem with determining whether the the issues within the building actually caused the health complaint. Now, if we can move on to your paper, I was really, by the way, This one is very tough for those of you listeners out there uh, that don't have a good background like I don't in epidemiology and statistics. But if you hang in there and work your way through it, I think you'll you'll get a lot from it. It's called Association of Residential Dampness and Mold with Respiratory Tract Infections and Bronchitis, a meta-analysis. And the paper starts with the statement within the abstract, and I'd like to give this to our listeners so that I can kind of set it up. It starts by saying dampness and mold have been shown in qualitative reviews to be associated with a variety of adverse respiratory health effects, including respiratory tract infections. Several published meta-analysis have provided quantitative summaries for some of these associations, but not for respiratory infections. Can you explain for our listeners the difference between the qualitative reviews and a meta- meta-analysis?
0: Okay, so the, the overall story is every single epidemiologic study, an epidemiologic study is a study that's trying to look at causes or prevention of some kind of disease in some group of Welcome people.
3: Welcome to TalkShoe. And each epidemiologic study will
0: try to find the relationship between, we'll try to see if there is a relationship between some kind of exposure, like dampness or mold, and some kind of health key effect, key like asthma development that. or asthma exacerbation or wheezing or something. So each study will look at some relationship. And then when someone does a review, what they're yeah. trying, carefully reading all the individual studies and deciding which ones are good enough to, to believe, and then combining what they all say together and coming up with some clear a uh, brief conclusion and so usually people do these as qualitative reviews where they're not really looking at the numbers from all these specific studies they're looking at the qualitative the quality of the work and so a qualitative review might say something like there's enough studies out there that show a relationship between uh visible dampness and mold in uh homes and uh... and uh... asthma exacerbations to say that they're clearly associated Uh, and but there's no numbers involved in your conclusion of of what you think the whole body of evidence shows so that's kind of a normal qualitative review but on the other hand if you take the numbers that each study produces if one study says uh, being exposed to dampness in your home gives you a fifty percent increased chance of asthma development and another study says Uh, Being exposed to dampness near home gives you a 75% increase in the risk of asthma development. And another study says there's no increase. What a quantitative review, which is also called a meta-analysis, does is it takes all the numbers and it weights each study by how big it is and how precise it is, and it comes up with one summary number that includes all the information from all the studies on that particular question. Uh, So, that quote that you just read was saying that, yeah, there's been lots of qualitative reviews on dampness and mold in health, and one of the health effects that they found was associated with dampness and mold consistently were respiratory tract infections, but no one's ever pulled the numbers out of all those studies on respiratory tract infections to give one summary number of how much dampness and mold increases the risk of developing a respiratory infection. Okay, so that's... Okay. That's my attempt to answer that.
2: that. No, that helps me a lot. I, I mean, I, you know, I don't have a good background in this area, and and the statistics within the uh, document are very interesting. But for those of us that aren't familiar with some of the terminology, it can be a little tough. And that explained it well. Now, as far as this particular paper, this meta-analysis, you did come up with some numbers, and you did come up with some some conclusions and specifically on the the potential I, I want to make sure I choose my words carefully, the potential for dampness to cause respiratory tract infections. Is this the first meta-analysis to
0: show that connection? Uh, yes. So this was an idea from Bill Fisk, who's the first author on this paper and who did most of the heavy lifting on this paper uh, which is No one, respiratory infections are really a major public health problem all over the world, major illness, major death, major costs, and yet they're not really very preventable in that you can try to avoid people with uh, respiratory infections. You can try to uh, avoid giving yours to someone else. There's a a very few things you can do, but if it turns out that dampness and mold, exposure or increasing respiratory infections, those are preventable. So it would be really exciting as a public health uh, uh, strategy to know that you could reduce dampness in health and reduce, at least according to this meta-analysis, maybe 10 to 20 percent of respiratory infections you could prevent. Wow. and no one had estimated that before. And 10 to 20 percent of
2: how many? So what, what would be the total number or ballpark of respiratory infections that people deal with, I guess, annually? Or um,
0: I could not tell you that. I think people have two or three colds on average, but this meta-analysis dealt with really all kinds of respiratory infections, including okay. colds and flu and Respiratory sensational virus and bronchitis and many many, any other kind of respiratory infection was essentially included in this meta-analysis. I couldn't give you an estimate, but we can assume it's a very large number. A very yes, since it is, I believe you
2: said it's like the most common uh, infection within within the population. Respiratory infections. Right. Okay. All right. Now. I also want to make sure that we clarify for listeners a little something because the the title of the paper, Association of Residential Dampness and Mold with Respiratory Tract Infections and Bronchitis, you, you separated out respiratory tract infections and bronchitis, and I think maybe it would be helpful for listeners if we first of all determine why and then got a little bit of a definition of, of what bronchitis is, and then maybe we can go into what actually causes bronchitis.
0: Okay, uh, so respiratory tract infections can be upper respiratory, tr- upper respiratory tract, or lower respiratory tract. Um, bronchitis is uh, an inflammation of the mucous membranes of the bronchi, which are lower respiratory. Um, some of them are infectious, and some are not, and that's why we combined them in this paper. Uh, and I, I could go into a little bit about
2: the causes of bronchitis. Yeah, let's do that. I mean, I I noticed in the paper it was fascinating to me that you know you had either viral, bacterial, and other. Could you could you go into a little more detail on that with respect to what causes this uh, bronchitis and which is a an infection versus you know there was also a discussion of chronic bronchitis versus bronchitis.
0: Right. So they're both inflammation. Uh, acute means short-term and chronic means more long-term so acute bronchitis is considered to be mostly infections mostly viral say a common cold or respiratory syncytial virus or influenza but a few cases can be caused by bacterial infections and so acute bronchitis in our analysis we just assumed it was all infectious but chronic bronchitis is generally considered not to be caused by infections of the respiratory tract but it's more from recurring injury or irritation to the lining of the bronchi so say from tobacco smoke or irritating dust or fumes or chemicals
2: you know I'm a perfect example of that, Dr. Mendel, I, um, I was diagnosed with chronic bronchitis as a, as a child and I had pneumonia four times as well and I know well, I know what I think it was from, and I just want to make sure that um, you agree with my assumption here, but my parents both smoked. They were heavy smokers. They smoked around me because they didn't know any better. Do you think that could have possibly been part of the reason for my chronic bronchitis?
0: So I, I should mention this is not an area that I'm an expert in. I'm not a medical doctor, and epidemiologists don't really talk about individuals as much as they talk about groups and probabilities. But it sounds like you got some bad exposures there.
1: Yeah,
2: I did. I and and as soon as I left the house at about nineteen, I, I never had either bronchitis or pneumonia again. Um, and in, in my opinion, it's all from environmental tobacco smoke. I didn't smoke either, so uh, it was just a mess. Now, one of the other quick questions I had on bronchitis it it mentioned virus, bacteria, and some fungi causing uh, bronchitis, and I or maybe it was pneumonia. Uh, I think it was pneumonia. It, it mentioned that it could be viral, bacterial, and possibly fungal. I had never heard of a fungal pneumonia. I don't know if you're that familiar with the issue or not, but if you are, um, how common is it, and what is there a particular type of fungi that causes pneumonia? That I could not help you with. Okay, all right, no problem. Just thought I'd uh, give it give it a shot because I find it interesting in the paper that I had never seen pneumonia uh, be, being caused by fungi anywhere before so i thought that was interesting now the, the other thing that was in here was um the statement uh respiratory tract infections are generally considered to include infections of the lower and upper respiratory tract and otitis, otitis media Lower respiratory tract infection includes pneumonia, acute bronchitis, and acute exacerbation of chronic bronchitis. What is, and I I probably screwed up the uh, pronunciation, what is the otitis, otitis media? Otitis
0: media is inflammation of the middle ear, which lots and lots of kids and some adults get. Uh, And because it very often happens in conjunction with an upper respiratory infection, Uh, We classed it here, and a lot of people class it as an upper respiratory infection, even though it's your ear rather than your respiratory system. But there's a tube that connects the middle ear where your little bones are in your ear that transmit sound to the nerve. There's a tube called the eustachian tube that connects that to the back of your throat so that things that are infecting your upper respiratory tract can sometimes go up that tube and get into the middle ear where they can sometimes thrive and cause a lot of uh, fluid and pressure and pain. And, and uh, it, it's very common and, and a serious problem for a lot of kids.
2: And what was the, um, the outcome with respect to that particular health effect and, and damp buildings? Was there a, a cause-effect relationship
0: there? Well, I, I should be clear that there's no – we did not show any cause-effect relationships here, because that takes lots more evidence than than we have for almost any of these diseases. What this was able to look at, is there, is there a consistent association uh, between specific health effects and some kind of exposure here at Stamps and mold? So there was not a lot of studies on otitis media in particular. Uh, I believe the numbers suggested, the, the numbers with the otitis were all very consistent with uh an, an association uh presence of dampness and mold increases otitis media but uh we didn't do an actual number estimate estimate for that because there weren't enough but but the few numbers there were were consistent with an association okay and i'll try and get
2: my terminology right here uh, consistent <laughs> with an association <laughs> it's
0: tough it's tough at times uh okay
2: now the next section and we're going to have to break for halftime in a minute if um, if Cliff is still on the line. I'm not even sure, but I know everybody can hear us because they're still hanging in there, and I can see on, the, on my computer screen we're doing just fine. So if we don't get back to Cliff, we'll just keep running the interview and uh, go for it. But anyway, before we go to halftime and thank our sponsors – in the the study you had six criteria selected for the studies you used in your meta analysis and i won't go through all those and people who want to uh, review the the paper we'll see if we can figure out a way to um get them a a way of getting the paper but anyway um there were six criteria and it was pretty you know pretty stringent Uh, criteria to become a part of this analysis and what I'm curious about is how many studies met all of these criteria 23 23 studies okay so out of the probably thousands of studies that you looked at um, or maybe I'm putting words into your mouth there how many did you look at as a ballpark idea and then you got it down to these 23 that actually met all
0: of the criteria I don't remember the exact number, but it's not a big number. No, because this is a very narrow question, so I'm guessing that might have been thirty, uh, maybe even forty uh, total. Well, not that many. All right. Now, a lot of the studies—I
2: was looking at the studies that were referenced in the in the paper, and um, it seemed like quite a few of them were published before the 2009 report. I got some background there, that might be, Cliff, is that you?
1: Yeah, Joe, can you hear us okay?
2: Yeah, good, okay, Cliff, all right, you're back. Um, Did you want to break for halftime and thank our sponsors and then come back?
1: We can do that.
2: All right, great. Dr. Mandel, hold on for just a minute, we have to thank our sponsors. Okay,
1: sure. We wish to acknowledge and thank our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And the National Air Duct Cleaners
2: Association, NADCA. NADCA is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at
1: www.nadca.com. We wish to acknowledge and thank our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
2: And Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends.com hyphen enviro.com.
1: we want to express our sincere appreciation to our marquee sponsors indoor environment connections the newspaper for the iaq industry subscriptions and advertising information is available at ieconnections.com.
2: and of course john don products where restoration and abatement contractors shop at j-o-n-d-o-n john don, dot com.
1: CleanFacts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news, visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products and services.
2: All right. Thank you, Cliff. Did you want to jump in? You sound great now, by the way. It sounds like we got all the technical issues ironed out back there. Did you want to jump in and ask a question? You want me to keep rolling?
1: You can keep rolling, Joe. I'll jump in at some point.
2: Okay, great. And then, uh, Dr. Wow, I know you're still on the line, and we'll bring you in uh, for the roundup. I'm going to try and start the roundup about 10 till 1 Eastern here. And um, we started a little late because of technical difficulties. Dr. Mendel, do you have to run out right after this? Nope. Nope. Can we hang in there for maybe an extra 5 minutes or so? Sure. Great. We appreciate that. Okay, we were talking a little bit about the um the study that that uh, you you and Dr. Fisk and I want to make sure I also get the third um
0: Dr. I think it is El- Elisiva. She this is a, a biostatistics graduate student named Ekaterina Elisiva. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Um, Sometimes I don't get a chance to check on my
2: pronunciations before the show, but we appreciate it. I had to ask her myself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. Now, I looked at these um, studies that were included in your paper and in your review, and it it seemed like, I don't know, two-thirds, maybe more, maybe three-fourths were available at the time of the World Health Organization's report that came out guidelines for iaq dampness and mold what is different about your findings compared to the world health organization study
0: um the they were both both were being done at about the same time and in fact if you ever were to read the whole world health organization review and look at the chapter on the epidemiologic review you'd see that i led that review so i was doing both at the same time. Now, the World Health Organization review, as I tried to explain earlier, was a qualitative review. It just said, based on the the, the qualities, the, the conclusions of all these studies, what do we know altogether? But it didn't summarize the numbers from each individual study, whereas this particular article that we're talking about here focused down on one particular uh, set of outcomes, the, the respiratory infections and bronchitis, and combined the numbers by using statistical modeling techniques to come up with one number for each relationship.
2: And would you comment on, for our listeners, and, and a lot of us aren't familiar with statistics, would you comment on the the number that you came up with and how, I don't know, influential, how, um, you know, how, how important that
0: number is in your mind? Uh, well, this meta-analysis came up with a, a few numbers. We, we would look at specific health outcomes like all bronchitis or all respiratory infections or all respiratory infections if you leave out otitis media uh, or common cold and any other acute upper respiratory infection together. So, we came up with uh, one, two, three, four, about six or seven different specific number estimates. They're all close to each other. They're all, uh, I probably shouldn't get into a discussion of the particular uh, epidemiologic uh, construct we use. It's called an odds ratio. But basically, they're saying that expo- uh, exposure to dampness and mold in residences is consistently associated with increases of something like 40 to 50% in the probability of developing one of these uh, health effects. And, uh, and, and that yeah. could come about because of two different reasons,
2: right? It could actually maybe be causing the health effect, but it could also be causing a situation where the health effect is more likely. Is that accurate?
0: Uh, well, let's see. I guess the way I put it is, so if you're talking about dampness or mold, no one really seems to think that dampness all by itself causes health effects. We we, seem, we we generally assume there's some kind of agent of some kind that's correlated with dampness. So when you study dampness, you may not be measuring all the different agents that are somehow growing or being released related to the dampness, but that's really the process going on, even though in your study, you're just looking at whether a place is damp or not. So... The kinds of causes that people have thought might make sense include that when you have damp uh, materials in a building, that some kind of microbiologic organisms are growing, and in some way they're producing some agent that c- increases illness. And this could be something that's like an allergen, or it could be something that's more like uh, uh, an irritant, or something that causes an inflammatory reaction that causes illness. And it seems pretty clear so far that, that this is not just something that happens to allergic people, but dampness and mold have effects on people who are allergic and on people who are not allergic, and it seems to involve processes that are allergic and also processes that aren't allergic. Uh, and uh, another possibility is, but yet when people have tried to measure specific microbiological uh, things like, culturable fungi, cultural bacteria, total or specific species or uh, endotoxin or glucan or uh, extracellular polysaccharides, there has not been any of those that consistently are associated with an increase in a health effect where we can say, this is really the causal agent. We found it, and now we can focus on this causal agent. At this point, all we know is that dampness and mold are associated statistically with all these health effects, and it could be some kind of microbiologic exposure that we haven't nailed down yet. It could be chemicals emitted from wet materials. Uh, we, we really don't know what it is. Interesting, and that's pretty much what we
2: hear on a regular basis, even though I'm, I'm curious that if we separated it out and said just damp. Let's say let's we separated it out and just said mold. Um, would you say would you be able to say the same thing that we still feel there's some association that mold is kind of almost
0: always one of the variables we find when we find these problems? So I tell you, you know, there's something we can say at this point, and some things we can't say. So at this point, all these reviews that we've talked about, you know, the the World Health Organization, before that, the Institute of Medicine, what they've done is they've taken all the studies that look at whether you can see water damage or you can see dampness or you can see mold or you can smell mold, and they put them all together. And that's the group of things that's consistently associated with uh, all these respiratory health effects. But it's, in some of the studies, I don't look at mold at all. I just look at water damage. In some of the studies, I look just at mold and not water damage. And in some studies, I look at both. So we don't really have a clear picture yet uh, what piece even of those is is critical. And um, it, I think most people seem to assume that mold is part of this, but this, it, it's not so crystal clear yet from the studies themselves that mold is always a part of it.
2: Okay. Now,
0: I'm just curious, what
2: what kind of response have you gotten to the paper
0: so far? Well, none. It's only been out uh, a short time, and there's... There's not really any obvious way to get response to a paper that I know of. Okay. Well we got you on the show. This one.
2: <laughs> well, that's actually yeah, this is the first response to it. <laughs> well, we always like to break things first, so we're happy to hear that. Um before we uh go to what we call a roundup and bring everybody else in, I I wanna ask if you could touch on the next paper you and I discussed that you're preparing to publish and um Throw so our listeners in a little bit on what that will be about, and then uh, maybe at some future point we can bring you back and, and talk in a little more detail about it.
0: Okay. Uh, so, there's been a sequence of big reviews of everything we know about dampness, mold, and health from the epidemiologic studies. Uh, and the, the first big one in this country was by the Institute of Medicine, and then the World Health Organization did one that was published back in 2009. And so, and I think either today or Monday, I'm going to send in the final version of the newest, most updated, comprehensive review of what we know about dampness, mold, and health. Uh, and I'm, it'll be to the Environmental Health Perspective, which is published by NIH, and is the articles are free to everybody. And it's just a big, massive summary, and it's a qualitative review. It's a summary of everything we know about dampness, mold, and health uh, to date. Okay. And that will be free and we'll we'll make sure that when it's
2: available we'll let our listeners know how they can get a uh, a look at that. And by the way, the the paper that we were just talking about, Association of Residential Dampness and Mold with free. Trek. That one's also open access. Okay. Yeah. Great. I will yeah. um I
0: will post the link then for the listeners after the show. Yeah, Before if I could we... make a quick comment. The, sure. the main conclusion of the paper that I'm about to publish is pretty similar to the conclusion of the previous big reviews, which is all the health evidence says if you see dampness, if you see water damage, if you see mold, or if you smell mold, it is a consistent indicator of a health hazard. Uh, if you wanted to measure something like specific fungi or bacteria or parts or products of fungi or bacteria, there is no solid science yet showing that that consistently predicts health. So the conclusion based on all this health research is there is no basis for using measurements of mold, etc., for making decisions on health and what to do about health in buildings. That's interesting. So for making decisions
2: on health, um, I would imagine the next question would be what about using measurements of mold for determining whether or not there is an, an issue to start with, but also, more importantly, I guess, for a lot of our listeners, whether or not the dampness and mold have been
0: adequately cleaned up. Any yeah, comment a on tough that? Question. Uh, yeah, I guess what I meant to say is, if you're trying to make decisions about whether there's a mold problem in a building that is a health hazard, or even if you're trying to make decisions about whether there's enough of a mold problem that you've adequately fixed or it's still there, there's no science Supporting any interpretation of mold measurements that I know of.
2: Interesting. That ought to be. We'll we'll look forward to talking about that in a little more detail. Um, I also, before we go to halftime, wanted to just ask a couple general questions because, in in looking at your background, you know, you've looked at a wide range of indoor environmental quality issues and done a great deal of research. And one of the things. I know that um, the International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate and others is trying to promote right now and, and Indoor Air 2011 is coming up and one of the big themes is getting researchers and practitioners working you know, together or at least getting the information from researchers to practitioners to allow them to do a better job of going out and assisting people with these problems. When it comes to indoor environmental quality issues, what is one important concept or tip you would give people to people that are somewhat new to the indoor environmental quality business?
0: Uh, I guess one thing would be that if, if, if it's at all possible, try to keep connected to what the science is saying. Even though there's never enough science to really tell you everything you need to know, you have to make decisions beyond that. But if you can at least keep up with what the current science is saying, uh, it will help temper some of the, the the opinions out there that are kind of anecdotally based that may not be correct. Okay. That's, I think that's a great piece of advice, and that's something we try
2: and help practitioners with here on the show. That's why we have guests like you. The next one would be uh, let's talk about someone that, that's got a lot of experience in the, in the indoor environmental quality business. Any tips or uh, you know techniques or concepts you'd make like to make sure that they remember or keep in mind as they go about
0: their business? Uh, well, if someone's really got an established business and they and they want to uh, have some credibility. Uh, this is related to the, the comment I made a minute ago about someone just starting out in the business. There's a nice summary of what we know from science about indoor air quality and health that the EPA has funded Lawrence Berkeley Lab to do, and it's, it's available on the web. It's called an IAQ, Scientific Findings Resource Bank. Uh, it's mostly put together by Bill Fisk, and it's just a really fine summary for what do we know from the science. Right. That's actually. I can the website now or, or later. Well, let's go for it now. Okay. It's www.iaqscience, one word, .lbl.gov.
2: L-B-L dot l b l for Lawrence Berkeley Labs, dot .gov. Exactly. Excellent. We appreciate that. I know I've got a link to it, but I want to make sure... Oh, our listeners do, and I'll put one on the IAQ Radio website as well. Okay, we're coming up on about 10 minutes left now. Let's, um, if Cliff's still with me, let's go to the roundup, Cliff. We'll get Dr. Dietrich Wauer, our technical director, on. See if he's, I'm sure he's got a comment or two on this. And um, Dr. Mandel, if you can hang in there for just another 5 or 10 minutes. We'll uh, wrap this up. Okay,
1: thank you. Move on, hit him up, hit him up, move on, move on, hit him up, raw, high, get him out, right? All right,
2: Cliff, how do you want to go?
1: Okay, uh, I can go first, and then if you want, you can bring in Dr. Dieter next if you want. Okay, great. Um, Yeah, Dr. Mendel, what effect do you think that the paper will have on litigation? Because sooner or later somebody's going to introduce it in court.
0: It's a fascinating question because I never think about that. Um, And I know that the the way that epidemiologists think about evidence is completely different from the way that evidence and and proof and causality are considered in courts. Uh, I, I imagine that that uh, you could have the paper could be attacked from from both directions actually. the If you were a plaintiff's attorney you might be really unhappy that this review and all the other reviews of dampness and and health say that we don't yet have causality established. So that would give indigestion to a, to a, a plaintiff's attorney. Uh, what the, the, the defendant's attorneys would probably be happy about is that there's not causality documented for most of these relationships and so they might actually be uh, uh, happy to point that out they wouldn't be actually attacking the paper Um, I I don't actually know how a court deals with a scientific finding that there's a clear and consistent association between something and a health effect but not a causal association you know that's a great
2: It's a a great question, and it's an interesting subject, and it's something that actually got me thinking quite a bit because I recently did a project, and I can't say where, but it was a big project with uh, 160 units and a lot of young kids who were having a lot of respiratory tract infections, bronchitis, etc., and this was before I had seen this paper. And there were some lawsuits that were being threatened, a couple that had actually been filed, and they all seemed to be kind of uh, pointing out the allergic reactions and, more importantly, I guess, or more commonly, the potential for toxicity and toxic reactions from living in these units. And I'm wondering if, and this is just me kind of thinking out loud, I'm wondering if attorneys won't look at this paper and start to... You know, rethink the way they file things, and um, it might open their mind to other potential infections, respiratory infections in particular, and especially chronic respiratory-type
0: infections, as
2: a, a reason for pursuing a lawsuit against a building owner. So
0: but, actually, that, that's a fascinating point, because I, I haven't looked into this that much, but just recently I was looking at, a I think it was an official... Uh, Paper from uh, some national association of physicians, essentially saying the only way that dampers the mold could be having an effect is through, uh, you know, allergy or through uh, responses in immunocompromised individuals. But all this toxic stuff doesn't happen, um, and that's not that's now in some way an obsolete perspective because. Uh, while it's probably still true that all the stuff about stachybotrys and mycotoxins is not established in any way as a, a cause in humans in, in, in building exposures, the evidence, uh, I guess it's not so much in this article we're talking about now, but in the, the broader review that's going to get published in a few days, the evidence is very clear that there is a whole set of health effects that are not allergic, and yet they happen in individuals generally, and they cause health effects, respiratory health effects in humans. Uh, and it does, you don't have to get into the whole stachypotris-mycotoxin argument at all. That's Yeah, I
2: think this will really be an interesting uh, next couple of years here and, and maybe even next five years with respect to legal issues. Let's bring Dr. Wow in and uh, get him to finish up with some comments. We've still got about, I think, about seven minutes, so that should be just about enough time for Dr. Wow to go through his comments from the show and maybe uh, get Dr. Mundell to respond.
3: Yeah, that is my
2: cue. <laughs> <old, Mr. Cohen. laughs> Hello, Doctor Dietrich. How are you, sir? Dietrich I'm, just,
3: wow. I'm just fine. Thank you. Good to have you, dear. Any comments or questions? Oh, yeah, uh, 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 a ton of them. And uh, Doctor Mandel uh, uh, touched upon those. You know, if you do epidemiology, that means you are looking at human populations. You can't do epidemiology in mice and rats. Um, And it it is a very useful tool, and it is a very misused tool. And uh, probably to understand that, and Dr. Mandel said that, I said, hey, we get associations. That doesn't mean that we have proved that XYZ is uh, causing this and this in, 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 in somebody. It doesn't. And I think the, one of the things that people should think about is that yeah, any, any set of data you give me, any one of them, I can apply one of 10,000 statistics, which are in wonderful books all over the world, and I always will get an association. There's no way that I don't get one. The only question is, how good is this uh, association? How convinced am I that the number I tickled out of that set of data is really what it really means? Or is it just good enough for the guy or the the lady or the gentleman who used it that it, quote, uh, triple quotation marks, uh, proves something? And that is, and and we touched upon that. Yeah, I'm not knocking that at all. You just have to know the problems which are associated by applying a statistic to a set of data. And there is another thing that people don't realize when we talk about statistical uh, probability or something like that. Yes. And that is we always use, well, we can't do 100% because you never ever can study 100% of everything. That doesn't work. So we go and I said, well, is 99% good enough? Nah, not really. That is going to be troublesome and cost a heck of a lot of money. So we settle with 95% probability that I come up with the right answer. By the way, that 95% is used by pharmaceutical companies in toxicology and uh, tests and all of that. Now, what does that mean? And I said, well, I'm 95% of the time I'm right and 5% of the time I'm not right. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And it is. There's is no question about it. But let's go one step further. That means if I repeat a study 20 times, 19 times I come up with the same answer, and damn it, wouldn't you believe it? There is that one study that I did, and what is happening to it? It proves, not proves, it just gives me the exact opposite answer of what I wanted to see. That is 95% probability that you are right, or that you made the right conclusion. So I think we've got to keep that one in, uh, uh, in our minds when we are looking at that, And if you apply it to wet environments, I don't even look at statistics because I'm convinced if I have a wet environment somewhere, there is something happening in there. And I really don't give a damn what it is. I know there is something that is not right. Is it a bacterium? Is it a mold? Yeah, whatever it could be, in wet environments, there uh, are a lot of living things that may not be good for us, living things, the humans, and for that matter, our dogs and cats and birds and plants or whatever. So I think we got to keep that in mind. And it, like I said, it is a, it's a wonderful tool to have to look at things and say, "Hey, this looks interesting," or we have we we know whether it's a one-way street or a two-way street, and I would better shut up right now. Well, thank you, Dr.
2: Weil, as always, for joining us and for your comments. Dr. Mendel, did you want to respond at all?
0: Oh, um, well, I think I'm I'm in largely in agreement with Dr. Weil. I think that any study, studies all find randomly different answers around the true answer that they're trying to get, and that the whole point of all the reviews, and in particular the quantitative reviews, is to take the whole range of Answers that different studies find on the same question, and summarize them all into what they all say together, where you're accounting for all that variability among all the studies. Uh, and then I think that the, uh, the the epidemiologic studies really do support that if you see wet indoor surfaces and damp spaces, there really is a, a, a probability of an increase in health risks, but I don't think you can know that that's true just from the logic of it. I think that it's really good that the epidemiologic studies confirm that belief. Uh, What would be really wonderful is if the studies, and this is what I would most like to see in the way of research, to do much better to figure out exactly how do you decide if a space is wet enough or moldy enough to be a health hazard, because we still don't know how to do that yet, and all it's going to take is a bunch of research, and then we'll know.
2: Well, there's a lot of people out in the audience that uh, would second that, I'm sure. We, mm-hmm. we would love to know that, and I think, you know,
0: it sounds like
2: maybe we're, we're going to get to that point. Uh, I don't know. What, what, what do you think? Are we going to, how long is it going to take before we're able to really make those kind of uh,
0: judgments? Well, it's hard to say. It, it's been very uh, resistant to being understood so far, but there's some some findings. You know David Miller. He's just told me about some new findings and kind of exciting, suggesting that we may be getting much closer to doing this. Yes. yes, he's been on the
2: show, and he's a fascinating gentleman. I hope we'll get him yes. back. And, and uh, Will you be at Indoor Air 2011, by the way? I will. Great. Will you? I will. I would uh, look forward to getting a chance to say hello to you and to a bunch of other people we've interviewed over the years here. Um, well, we've okay. got a close this out but before we do we always like to ask uh, our guest is there anything that you would like to add for our listeners and, and you know what let me also real quickly if you if you have another minute um, we had a text question that came in the listener had to jump off but they'll listen to the um, to the recording which by the way comes out much better than the the phone conversation but uh, with respect to the call quality quality of the recording they were asking um, they had hoped we would discuss a little bit about hot humid climates in the context of your meta-analysis and I just wondered if you had any comment on that uh, on that comment they brought, they texted in.
3: Uh,
0: I'm not sure I know much about that. I think most of the research we get is not from hot and humid climates. Uh, I think a little bit is. Um, I would assume that, You'd have the same kinds of problems there, or possibly even more, but I'm not sure. Do you know what they were curious about in particular? No, I really don't. They had just texted in, Dr.
2: Mendel, thank you for your in-depth information. We had hoped to discuss hot, humid climates in the context of your meta-analysis. I I assume um, they are of the opinion, and this is really a big assumption, that um,
0: these issues are more of a problem in
2: hot, humid climates, which kind of makes sense.
0: They could well be. I think in one of the questions when you're doing one of these analyses is if you're trying to get one answer out of a lot of studies, but the studies have really different answers, then you, you might be making a mistake. So one of the things you do is you look at are there subgroups in all the studies that seem to be more similar to each other. And we did look briefly at geographic location, and I, I believe that there was a slight suggestion of an even stronger relationship between dampness, mold, and respiratory infections in the more southern uh, humid areas than in the northern uh, cooler, drier areas.
2: Okay. I'm sure that would be of interest to them. And again, before we go, is there anything you would like to add that we missed? Uh, I know we obviously could talk for hours, but if there's one key point you'd like to make sure our listeners get from this discussion, uh, what would that be?
0: Uh, Hmm. Well, I guess I'd say for myself that since I've always worked in the more pure research field, it's been good to work at the health department and realize how very hard it is to take all this science stuff and make it actually useful. So I I don't know if the ways I've tried to describe the science stuff to actual people on your show has been comprehensible or useful, but uh, I think that's something that's really important to do and, and to do better.
2: I appreciate that, that sentiment, and, uh, again, that's why they're trying to get, and we are as well, the IZIAC, the International Society, and IAQ Radio, we're trying to bring researchers on and trying to ask questions that will help practitioners understand what the research says and then take that out and uh, help make people's lives a little better by making sure they're living in healthier environments. So we really want to thank uh, Dr. Mendel for joining us, Dr. Mark J. Mendel from Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories, and the California Department of Public Health. Uh, It's been a great show, and uh, hopefully we'll get you back again sometime. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap it up for today. Before we go, I want to make sure I thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick.
1: Yeah, Joe, it was fun, even though we had the technical difficulties. I
2: think we'll... We'll get that all cleaned up in editing here over the next couple of days and the recording
1: will come out perfect for everybody. Right. I think it might have had something to do with the snow, you know, when you got six inches of snow on the different connections and so on and so forth, I think it plays havoc with the phone lines and everything else maybe.
2: Well, I'll take a listen tomorrow morning and uh we'll we'll get anything cleaned up that was a problem. I also want to thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, of course, our our, uh, engineer at the controls, Austin Stone Cold Novak. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us next Friday at noon with Mr. Jeff Cross, the editor of Clean Facts, for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.